What's up, guys? It's Friday, October 2nd, 2020, and welcome to this edition of the FritzCast. Not live streaming today. Decided to take a step back. Uh, I missed last week's episode. Just couldn't do it. Life got busy. Life got in the way. Life, uh, 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 finds a way. Um, I got busy. I couldn't do it. And I've, I've had a pretty busy week this week, too, um, you know. But I'm glad to be here, glad to be putting out this episode of the FritzCast, which is going to go out tonight on October 2nd on Friday. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you can join me. Sorry it's not a live stream. I did live stream yesterday. I was at uh, that sign right back there in between my flags, in between my historical flags, uh, is uh, Joe Jorgensen sign. And that's because Joe came to Delaware uh, yesterday here in Newcastle, Delaware, at uh, Wheelie's Farm, and uh, went there. A wonderful event uh, with a lot of different people uh, gathered together. Uh, it was so great to be uh, gathered with a, a bunch of people uh, who wanted to, you know, just have something a little different. Um it was really great to have that have the have the opportunity to to see her in person yes i've interviewed her i was one of the i think first libertarian podcasts to get her after her nomination as the uh libertarian party candidate uh but talking with her on the computer is one thing. Going to be able to see her in person and go through her, you know, addresses and and be able to answer questions from the audience and all that was great. And uh, if if you're interested at all, I actually I live stream that on Periscope, which is on the Twitter account, and I'm working on getting that to uh, getting a copy of it to the Facebook. Uh, obviously, because it's a live stream from an event from my cell phone, uh, it might not be the utmost quality, like. Perhaps my voice is right now, or this video is right now, but uh, I, I still think it's uh, worthy to hear uh, what she had to say if you're interested in that, especially if you're from Delaware and couldn't go. Um, so that that there's that. I missed last week, like I said, busy as hell. I actually was uh, on a phone call today earlier with uh, with uh, somebody from Podchaser, uh, which was a great conversation. Uh, so it's been it's been a little troubling been a little busy and uh, there's some news items that we can go over today too but uh, I have I have right here that I'm going to be reading from I don't I don't do this often on Fritzcast Fritzcast is off the cuff me doing a lot of uh, talking about uh, my thoughts and my opinions on things uh, I sat down though uh, because obviously we, we we've had the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, Supreme Court justice seat is open, and now we have a lot of back and forth because uh, the Republican Senate, Mitch McConnell, at the forefront, is ready to jam through this nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And a lot of people are up in arms about it because in 2016, what happened, it, was, it wasn't even this close. Uh, it wasn't this late in, electric, in, a, in an election cycle uh, that uh, Barack Obama nominated uh, Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court, and Mitch McConnell blocked it. Said they would not hold hearings, they would not hold a vote, they pretty much just said, nope, not going to do it. And there was a lot of arguing over what, what whose duty was what to do at, for all of this. And so I, I sat down and I really started researching the Supreme Court stuff 
and it, it turns out to, to this, like, seven pages. It's not actually seven pages. It's seven pages in size 12 font. It's blown up bigger so I can read a little bit better. Because uh, I don't do this whole, I don't do the monologue thing a lot. But I felt like I had to for the Supreme Court thing because everybody just wants to point to Merrick Garland and say, Merrick, you know, they, they set a precedent with Merrick Garland, which is arguable. You, you can arguably state that they set a precedence with Merrick Garland when they refused to hear him uh, because solely because Mitch McConnell and the Republicans had control of the Senate, and they could. That's that's what I did. We're, we're going to go over some of the some of the highlights in this. This is why I, I took time to write it out, and there's video clips that I'm going to be playing uh, interspersed. So before I get into anything else... <clears throat> Let's get ready for it. I'm going to try to, you know, I, I'm not going to try to monotonely read this either. I'm going to try to make this interesting and throw in my uh, my own thoughts and feelings, even though this written out is my thoughts and feelings. So, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the second female appointed to the Supreme Court in history, uh, famously dubbed the notorious RBG, unlike Kamala Harris's flub the other day where she says we wear those notorious B.I.G. shirts with pride. Way to go, Kamala. There's always somebody making some kind of mistake on the campaign trail. So, uh, Famously dubbed the notorious RBG by American lawyer, blogger, and eventual biographical author Shana Kiznisk passed away at 87 years old. Uh, appointed by President Bill Clinton in 1993, she served through the remainder of his tenure, eight years of George W. Bush, eight years of Barack Hussein Obama, and nearly a full term of Donald John Trump. Uh, Justice Ginsburg served 27 years on the court, certainly not the longest tenure, which lives with William O. Douglas, who served 36 years, seven months, and eight days from, 19, or from 1939 to 1975. A lot of uh, people bring up how long justices serve. This, this is something that pops up into dialogue all the time. You know, oh, we should have uh, we should have uh, term limits on on Supreme Court justices. Uh, uh, they shouldn't be lifetime appointments, which goes into the Constitution being a little too vague on on the positions uh, therein. Uh, so that's 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 an argument that people bring up. Oh, justices should. They shouldn't be lifetime appointments. This, and we're going to touch up on this in a little bit. But just because people have been saying that, I uh, I did some more research. So on average, justices serve about 16 years, according to their own website. Uh, but as of late, one of the spicier political topics that comes into mind uh, with the extreme battle over the Supreme Court is term limits for justices. In fact. The House Democrats are putting forward a proposed bill to limit justice terms to 18 years. I just told you that the average is 16, though, but they were putting up a, putting up a bill to limit it to 18 years. Uh, it's a bill that's symbolic. It's not going to go anywhere because the GOP-led Senate isn't going to touch it uh, with a 39-and-a-half-foot poll. Uh, they're focused on holding hearings for President Trump's nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. Right now, if you watch the news coverage... Uh, you see a, a pretty vitriolic battle ensuing right now over Amy Coney Barrett, uh, which uh, this happens. This happened with uh, 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 Brett Kavanaugh. It happened with Neil Gorsuch. They didn't have any dirt to dig up on Neil Gorsuch. Um, 
and it was a it was a fairly actually well I'll touch up on that one in a minute um, so we see a, a battle ensuing right now pretty vitriotic battle ensuing right now over Amy Coney Barrett uh, including many calling into question her character due to her religion her associations and the fact that a very unpopular president is appointing his potential third Supreme Court vacancy and one big key element one big key element in this uh, outcry over Republicans rejecting a quote unquote precedent they sent they set in 2016 when Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell absolutely stonewalled President Barack Obama by refusing a hearing or vote on Merrick Garland, Obama's nominee to fill a vacancy from the passing of Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, because of the block, newly elected Donald Trump nominated Neil M. Gorsuch, uh, who went through a fairly, fairly mild hearing in which Democrats were reeling from recent losses. And that's true. When when they went to do Gorsuch, it was you know there was some bitter feelings about uh, Merrick Garland being blocked and this seat being stolen, quote unquote, uh, which which is fine. Um, a lot of people say that set a precedent that uh, the Republicans should stick to following. Uh, there's something wacky about these precedents and stuff though that I'm going to get to in a minute. So that one went without. Too much of a problem, uh, you know. Believe it or not, it was it was fairly mild. Uh, going back and rewatching some of these uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, hearing clips, uh, which I, I watched dozens upon dozens of hours of, of nominee hearings uh, over the past week, ever since uh, R. B. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was announced, uh, any ever since her death was announced, I've been pouring over this stuff uh, because. We're, we're getting a little too vitriolic in our politics. We're way too divided, sharply divided, partisanly divided as well. Um, but that's beside the point. So we went through Gorsuch. It wasn't that much of a problem. When Anthony Kennedy uh, resigned, things became heated with nominee Brett Kavanaugh, where at the very start of the hearing you could see partisan divides setting in early. Uh, eventually leading to one testimony from Christine Blasey Ford stating allegations of sexual assault at the hands of Brett in their high school years. Uh, these events with the Kavanaugh hearing actually play out eerily similar to the Clarence Thomas hearings. Um, and a lot of this came to, to light in my mind from a, from a PBS documentary that I'm going to share with you um, at the end of this. Uh, I'm just wanting to check real quick. Do I have any bookmarks that I wanted to play? surrounding no I do not so with that being said we'll continue uh, with the written work uh, for those of us younger folks myself included um, unless we have compiled research we probably don't know the extensive history that set current precedent in Supreme Court justice battles. Uh, many believe this is just politics and it always has been this way. In my research, I have now found that surprisingly the struggles have been fairly recent, uh, albeit may not look albeit many may not look at a 30 year window as recent. Uh, just for an example, I'm 31 and some of the politics at play here has been 30, 40 years in the making. Um, 
And it all starts it all starts here. And this documentary really brought light to my eyes. A PBS documentary called uh, Supreme Revenge, uh, which I'm going to link into here. It's uh, about an hour long, and it'll break down even more details of, of this stuff. Uh, but really, what are we focusing on? The blame. Uh, many will simply boil this down to the fact that Mitch McConnell refused to give a hearing to President Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland. Many argue from Nancy Pelosi to Chuck Schumer that the power move set new precedent, albeit one that, albeit one can argue at this point without bringing up emotional appeal that should be considered as nothing but fodder. Um, let me state that again. Basically, people are going to link this to Merrick Garland. Oh, this is all because of the Merrick Garland block. The Republicans are big hypocrites, yada, yada, yada. And this is something that I warned against myself personally. I said they should have heard Garland because uh, we're going to go over the actual quote-unquote law just in a minute. But uh, many people are arguing right now, Chuck Schumer and uh, Nancy Pelosi, and, and I hear it on the news. I see it tweeted out. Uh, I see it all over the place. Everybody mentioning uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her dying wish, and I quote, that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Casting aside the reckless rhetoric being spun there, let's look at the truth. All right, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 states, He, the president, shall have power by and with advice and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provide two-thirds of the senators present concur and he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors other public ministers and councils judges of the Supreme Court and all other offices of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law Aside from that, there are no time frames provided or other rules set forth on placing a nomination to the Supreme Court. You'll hear people bring up things like, you know, the Biden rule, which will play a, a clip of the Biden rule. You'll hear a lot of people even more so uh, cite the Thurmond rule, which I'll talk about, uh, I believe, closer to the end here. Uh, but... Uh, just in case I, just in case I don't have it in my notes, the Thurman rule isn't even a rule. Um, it is. It it's not a precedent. It hasn't been followed um, as a precedent. Uh, it it's pretty much it's just fodder. If you test, if you if you bring up the Thurman rule in this case, it's fodder because it's not. It does not have a historical significance or following. It's a myth, essentially, um, something that was never put in place. Uh, so all of this means that when a vacancy comes, a new appointed uh, – somebody should be appointed and a hearing should be conducting and a vote for confirmation because there's literally – there's no other precedent to go off of. There is no written statements of time frames or, or, or time frames where it won't be allowed. Uh, by the Constitution, when the vacancy comes, a nominee sh shall be named – the Senate shall do hearings and vote, yes or no, point blank. Uh, sure, McConnell is now pushing through a nominee 
at the heels of an election while stonewalling another under similar circumstances four years ago, albeit with a way longer window four years ago. Uh, Shortly after Trump's election, Neil Gorsuch was nominated and McConnell invoked the nuclear option, allowing for the Senate to confirm Gorsuch with a simple majority vote. Gorsuch was confirmed 54 to 45 in a vote on April 7th, 2017. This move pretty much eliminated filibustering a a Supreme Court nominee. This is all the Republicans' fault, right? Wrong. It's not technically all the Republicans' fault. Uh, It was partisan bickering in 2013, and it was Harry Reid who pushed and pulled the trigger on the nuclear option. Which, if we go to the Chrome video split here, we have, where is it? Harry Reid, right here. I just want to look up further. I have a couple different clips that we could go for. Um, But we'll play the CNN video. This, this, this Throughout will. my career in law enforcement, I dealt with Look, a lot of ads. people that were... I hate ads. And of course my internet wants to sit and spin. Dealing with addiction. And then as I got... It's a historic change Democrats say will help fix a broken a system. It's time to change the Senate before this institution becomes obsolete. And Republicans argue will make Washington gridlock worse. It puts a chill on the entire United States Senate. Senate Democrats voted to lower the threshold to break a filibuster from 60 votes to 51 votes, a simple majority. It strips the minority party's ability to block a president's nominees. It's called the nuclear option for good reason. Just a few years ago, even Democratic leader Harry Reid said he wouldn't do it, saying it would be... a black chapter in the history of the Senate. So what about now? Why isn't this a black chapter in the history of the Senate? Things have changed dramatically since 2005. Dramatically. For the the last four and a half years, they have done everything they can to deny the fact that Obama was elected and then re-elected. Translation, GOP obstruction is unprecedented. To back that up, Democrats point to statistics from the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service. In the history of the country, there have been 168 filibusters of presidential nominees, about half, 82, happened during the Obama administration. In summary, this is a power grab. Angry Republicans don't necessarily dispute Democrat statistics about nominees they have blocked. Instead, they point to how many judges they have confirmed, 215, and rejected five. And when it comes to the fight that Democrats called the last draw over vacancies in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the Republican leader argues Democrats are manufacturing a crisis to distract from the Obamacare debacle. A fake fight over judges that aren't even needed. Now, Democrats say they get that this benefits them now that they're in the majority, but certainly the tables will be turned the day that they lose that majority status. Uh, But they essentially shrug their shoulders and say that this is a risk that they are willing to take because, in the words of one senior Democrat, the other option is continued obstruction. Now, there's some pretty telling things in that, in that statement where they say that they realized it would uh, come back to bite them in the butt, but that they were taking advantage of the fact that they were in power and they had the majority. And so what did they do? They changed the rules of the Senate. 
which at the time when they changed the rules of the Senate, it didn't apply to a Supreme Court justice per se, because somebody has to take that step to make it apply for the Supreme Court justice. Hello, Mitch McConnell. Now, a lot of people are going to say, oh, it was Harry Reid. Harry Reid pulled the nuclear option. Ha, 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 ha. Tough shit, right? Hold on. Harry Reid's nuclear option was something threatened before. Before he even threatened it and then said he wasn't going to do it and then went and did it anyway. In the 109th Congress, which was 2005 to 2007, Republican Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist squaring off against Harry Reid with the threat of the nuclear option being invoked. Many criticized both as grandstanding for their own political gain. Shocker! I'm shocked at how many people do things in the Senate when they have power for their own political gain. It's, it's insane. Uh, their battle was overshadowed and undermined but as a bipartisan effort of senators dubbed the Gang of 14 struck a deal. Seven Democrats would stop filibustering Bush nominees to lower courts. These are not, not Supreme Courts, by the way. This is a lower court um, nominees. And seven Republicans would vote against the nuclear option. Uh, and this was a pact that they made. Those 14 were Democrats Robert Byrd, Daniel Inyo, Mary Landriau, Joe Lieberman, Ben Nelson, Mark Pryor, Ken Sal- Salazar, with Republicans Lincoln Chafee, Susan Collins, Mark DeWine, Lindsey Graham, John McCain, Olympia Snow, and John Warner. This move made the senators not popular among their respective party leaderships, especially in the conservative camp, albeit the group was hailed outside of the arena for their moderate approaches for doing what was best for Senate procedure. Now you just read, or you just heard me rather, talk about Bill Frist going against Harry Reid on this. They were battling out over the same concept. Oh, you don't want to hear us, our, our court nominees? You want to keep blocking them? Fine. Nuclear option. We have we have more people. We'll just do simple majority. F off. We got the hammer, and, we're, and we'll use it. So does that does that mean that uh, this was the quintessential event that uh, screwed over American politics? No. <laughs> No, it goes further back than that. Let's be honest. Uh, uh, Even if you cite that case, which many either don't know about or it's been long forgotten because nothing happened at that time, uh, a lot of people jump back uh, further and further to speeches dubbed as rules, such as what I was mentioning, the Biden rule. Um... I gotta find my little clip here. The Biden rule was... Uh, I know I have a clip of it. I could be just a little more prepared. <laughs> I really could. Uh, there it is. Boop. So, Chrome split. So, a lot of people refer to the Biden rule. This was this is what they call the Biden rule. Works bring you long-form public affairs programming from the nation's capital and are a public service of your television provider. C-SPAN, created by cable. As a result, it is my view that if a Supreme Court justice resigns tomorrow or within the next several weeks, 
or resigns at the end of the summer. President Bush should consider following the practice of a majority of his predecessors and not, and not name a nominee until after the November election is completed. The Senate too, Mr. President, must consider how it re would respond to a Supreme Court vacancy that would occur in the full throes of an election year. It is my view that if the President goes the way of Presidents Fillmore and Johnson and presses an election year nomination, the Senate Judiciary Committee should seriously consider not scheduling confirmation hearings on the nomination until ever, until after the political campaign season is over. And I sadly predict, Mr. President, that this is going to be one of the bitterest, dirtiest presidential campaigns we will have seen in modern times. I'm sure, Mr. President, after having uttered these words, some, some will criticize such a decision and say there was nothing more than an attempt to save a seat on the court in hopes that a Democrat will be permitted to fill it. But that would not be our intention, Mr. President, if that were the course we were to choose as a Senate, to not consider holding hearings until after the election. Instead, it would be our pragmatic conclusion that once the political season is underway, and it is, action on a Supreme Court nomination must be put off until after the election campaign is over. That is what is fair to the nominee and essential to the process. Otherwise, it seems to me, Mr. President, we will be in deep trouble as an institution. And in deep trouble we are. Because beyond that, many would cite the Thurman Rule. Excuse me. Uh, beyond that, many would cite the Thurman Rule, and I already talked about that. Uh, the, bitter, the bitter rivalries are seen in the Clarence Thomas hearings, but almost universally agreed, the bitter, dirty, vitriolic, and divisive changes came from Ted Kennedy when President Ronald Reagan nominated Robert Bork to the Supreme Court. What unfolded, the civil discourse of the Senate hearing changed from dialogues and respectful disagreements to a game of wordplay, double standards, and character assassinations, which bleed into political dealings every day now. The question remains, did this move permanently change our politics, or is it just a symptom of larger ongoing problems? Perhaps, like people in power for so long, 20, 30, 40 years, that develop bitter grudges uh, and everything becomes part of personal vendettas. None of the above truly addresses the larger issue, the fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of the Supreme Court, which I'm going to talk about uh, in a minute. I have a couple of clips on, the, on that, and I want to focus on that. Uh, a little bit because uh, that was a lot to break through, and and I didn't even really break through it. The 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 PBS documentary uh, Supreme Revenge documents the Robert Bork hearings, and it it pinpoints the Robert Bork hearings 
as the turning point. Ted Kennedy coming out the same day that Ronald Reagan nominated Bork to the Supreme Court, going on a tirade on the floor of the Senate about why this nominee would be a terrible choice and the Senate should reject it, had never really happened in that way before. Uh, And what followed was uh, a a kind of... uh, a kind of circus, uh, news cameras and, and television cameras uh, packing in for these nomination hearings. Uh, the questions, uh, which Bork did not handle very well, he, he ended up lecturing senators and uh, and going very in depth into decisions that he would make, uh, which you don't you don't see now. It's a big reason why you don't see a lot of nominees going into. Decisions they would make in in hypothetical situations versus actual decisions that they've made on the bench before. Uh, uh, the The documentary points out from both Democrats and Republicans that participated in that documentary, uh, who were there at the time in the eighties. Uh, the The Robert Bork nomination is is what changed things, and then shortly thereafter was Clarence Thomas, which Clarence Thomas uh, kind of stonewalled all the questioning, uh, up until Anita Hill came into play. And Anita Hill came into play, and it was it was a drastic turn to what can we do to attack the character of this man, to the point that, that Clarence Thomas uh, uh, rebuked the Senate uh, in his final thoughts. And then once he was confirmed, he pretty much vowed, he was 43 years old, and he vowed to sit on the Senate another 43 years, or, or sit on the court, rather, another 43 years. The documentary points out that Mitch McConnell was the senator at the time, uh, the junior senator at the time, back in the 80s, and that uh, he was uh, he was very off-put by the treatment of Robert Bork. And, and he did start uh, with some... Rhetoric that would suggest that he would uh, he would be fighting that, and that he wouldn't forget, and that they would uh, ultimately pay for that. Uh, I, I I need I, I'd be remiss if I didn't pull up right here. Uh, I don't know where it is in this clip, but we're gonna pull it up from Washington Week. Are we seeing the end of the filibuster or the beginning of the end? Today's pattern of obstruction, it just isn't normal. It's not what our founders envisioned. Democrats play a little hardball. It's time to change. It's time to change the Senate before this institution becomes obsolete. Blowing up Senate rules to get the president's nominees confirmed. It's really not about the filibuster. Uh, It's another raw exercise of political power to permit the majority to do anything it wants whenever it wants to do it. A breakthrough or a breakdown? Good evening. It's quiet in Washington tonight, but there are echoes here from a tumultuous week. We begin in the Senate, where the biggest debate was about finding a way to end debate. The American people believe Congress is broken. The American people believe the Senate is broken. And I believe the American people are right. Senate Democrats infuriated the Republican. I'm going to stop it right there uh, because I'm really looking for 
Mitch McConnell's words. Um, I think this is it right here. We'll get through the stupid ass. Being stuck uh, at home in the city is no day. Mitch McConnell. <clears throat> Madam President. The majority leader. Our Democratic colleagues have done something uh, today that is unprecedented in the history of the Senate. Unfortunately, it has brought us to this point. We need to restore the norms and traditions of the Senate and get past this unprecedented partisan filibuster. Therefore, I raise a point of order that the vote on cloture under the precedent set on November 21, 2013 is a majority vote on all nominations. The ayes uh, are 48, the nays are 52. The decision of the chair does not stand as the judgment of the Senate. We need to do it again. Let's have order. That was on this vote. The eyes are for that was the vote to change it to the American people. Believe push Congress through is broken. Gorsuch. The American people believe the Senate is broken. That's over the history of this great. This country. is the clip I wanted right here. Once again, Senate Democrats are threatening to break the rules of the Senate. Break the rules of the Senate. In order to change the rules of the Senate. And over what? Over what? over a court that doesn't even have enough work to do, the majority leader promised, he promised, over and over again, that he wouldn't break the rules of the Senate in order to change them. And let's not forget about the raw power, the raw power at play here. On this point, the similarities between the Obamacare debate and the Democratic threat to go nuclear on nominations are inescapable. It's time to change. It's time to change the Senate before this institution becomes obsolete. Struck. Look, if advising consent is to mean anything at all, occasionally consent is not given. But by any objective standard, Senate Republicans have been very, very fair to this president. Is the Senate working now? Can anyone say the Senate is working now? I don't think so. If you want to play games, set yet another precedent that you'll no doubt come to regret. Say to my friends on the other side of the aisle, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. In other words, they believe that one set of rules should apply to them, to them, and another set to everybody else. He may have just as well have said, if you like the rules of the Senate, you can keep them. <laughs> the PBS documentary documents McConnell from the time of Robert Bork, sitting through Robert Bork, Clarence Thomas, and then steamrolling into these battles with Harry Reid. These are long-standing people, by the way. People who went into power and stood, stayed in power for a very, very long time in their positions. Obviously, to me, it seems that McConnell was a man hell-bent on getting to the position that he's in now. And also, 
taking a little personal vendetta and getting a little revenge in the case. And it's bad. It's bad because this is what politics has become. It's become this bitter, vitriolic, divisive pissing contest. And it's in the history for the past 40 years from some of these people that have still that still are in power. McConnell's still in power. Joe Biden is seeking power again. And every hearing that I mentioned from Bork to Thomas up through now, Biden's been in. Biden's been in. It's crazy. It's so crazy that at the end of the documentary, one of the most echoing bits at the end of the documentary is from Frank Luntz, uh, who's a pollster. And uh, I just want to play it right right now. Our friends in the United States Senate on both sides created that environment. Mr. Warner. And now we have to live with it. Ms. Warren. And the problem is, we can't. Mr. Whitehouse. And the biggest tragedy is that we are now hopelessly divided on the last thing that used to unite us, which is our judicial system. Now there's nothing that pulls us together. Nothing. And hopefully that played and actually got caught on the audio. Uh, He says the one thing that used to pull us together was... uh, was that it was uh it was agreeing on the judicial system and now we just don't have it anymore and it's it's very it's very bad it's very very bad and very telling that uh that that this is where we're at and and problematic it's very problematic that that this is where we're at and and it goes into this next bit what is the point and purpose of the supreme court anyway um I think this is something that is just highly ignored. Uh, everybody seems to think that the Supreme Court is a super legislative body that can pass through uh, uh, changes that you want um, without regard to anything. Like if you can't get it passed in the Senate, if you can't get it passed in the House, or, or you don't have the president on your side, send it to the Supreme Court and let the Supreme Court get it done for you, which is baffling and bizarre to me because that's just not how this works it's not how this works at all so the constitution what does judicial review mean well judicial review is is the uh power of the supreme court to declare an act of congress unconstitutional acts of states unconstitutional reverse decisions of state courts uh if they are in violation of a federal law or the constitution uh, you know, I, I try to tell my students uh, when, I, when I teach this stuff that you really have to read Article 3 of the Constitution, which gives powers to the court, with the famous Article 6. And what Article 6 of the Con- Constitution does, actually, it's, it's very simple. I mean, it makes the Constitution, the federal laws and treaties made under the authority of the Constitution, the supreme law of the land. In other words, the Constitution is above every other law including acts of Congress, including acts of state legislatures, including decisions of state courts. And if you look at the, if you look at the jurisdiction, the powers granted the federal courts and the Supreme Court, it's entirely possible that 
clients or, or parties to, to cases claiming under the Constitution will confront parties to a case claiming under, for example, state law. And what basically Marshall said in Marbury, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a marvelously simple statement. You know, actually, he, he, he stole the line from Blackstone's 10th Rule of Construction, but what he said, if you've got two conflicting acts and one is supreme over the other, one has to give way. And judicial review, of course, is, is this process by which the court says which will give way. And if there's a conflict, the Constitution or federal statute law in the case of states or federal treaties in the case of states will win out. Which is pretty important to take into consideration. Again, I'm hoping the audio played on and Now I'm, I'm, I'm paranoid that it didn't. And I don't want to... I don't want to take a chance and say that it did. Um, but R. Kent Neumeyer, who wrote John Marshall and the Heroic Age of the Supreme Court, uh, definitely with a ballpark answer here on on what uh, the importance of the, the Constitution is and what the Supreme Court decides. That's the biggest thing about this thing. People running and, and, and crying. I've seen people post this about crying about uh, uh, they, you know, they said they literally were brought to tears when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died because of who could potentially replace her and how that might impact their life. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, like, isn't this nuts? Isn't this? Shouldn't we not be so concerned about, uh, uh, or should should our government have this much power to the degree that that when a Supreme Court justice dies, we're, we're worried about how life could fundamentally change for for anybody, a group of people, uh, 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 an entire, you know, women, uh, you know, black Americans, uh, Latino America. Is this really where we are? Is this really where, where we want to be? Because I don't I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think if, if we fear that power that much, that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the structure because we shouldn't be fearing that. The, the, it's laid out <laughs> very, very well. Like you know, and then this is the thing. So Amy Coney Barrett, a lot of people are going to bring up. Uh, she has some extensive history talking about abortion and not supporting abortion. And you know, Roe versus Wade is always brought up. Everybody brings up Roe versus Wade, and they're like, "Oh, the Republicans are finally going to overturn Roe versus Wade." And uh, in my studying of, of this stuff and, and trying to decipher it a little more, honestly, the Roe the road versus Wade ruling is, is rather weak, um, if you think about it, because they went with like some your, your right to due process and privacy, I think, is, is, is the, over, the overarching point of why, uh, of how people say it's a constitutional right for a woman to get an abortion. It doesn't, like the Constitution doesn't state it. Obviously, they, they, the Constitution does not – nowhere within the Constitution does it say, oh, yeah, and by the way, women have a right to abortions. It, it doesn't say that. Uh, instead, they picked some rather weak uh, the, the argumentation to justify it, whereas if you listen to some of the dissenters like Antonin Scalia, he would tell you um, – as a textualist or whatever, he would tell you – uh, nothing in the Constitution says anything about it. It says it's a state's issue. The state, like, and, and he believes, Antonin Scalia did, that uh, that would be a state issue. You go to your state and you democratically vote for it and let the state take care of it. 
some people say that 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 can't abide in this day and age and that it has to be a national setting you know maybe it does maybe it doesn't i don't i'm not one to to know or argue that but it's one example of how people think the supreme court can legislate law rather than what it is actually there for it is there to interpret whether or not there is uh, constitutionality of law and checking the past precedent of other court cases up till now. It's just like how there's a section of Roe versus Wade that was overturned, uh, but here we are again talking about overturning it completely. And I get it. I get where people are up in arms about it, but... Uh, at the same time, I think like I think we have fundamental fundamental misunderstandings of how the system is supposed to work, and we've had these slippery slopes, like I just showed, where people are in power for so long that they develop these grudges and have their own vendettas, and then through those people, drastic changes happen, like uh, the nuclear option going off, which you know was Harry Reid, and then Mitch, Mitch McConnell getting hold of the reins basically saying you're going to regret it one day and we're at one day and they're regretting it. It's a pissing contest and it's very bad for our politics. It makes me wonder, is this just where we're at as America? Is this where we continue to go? Or do do some? does our generation, the younger generation, start stepping in and really not looking at these things in a vindictive manner in, in the past grudges and all that? And then we start stripping that away and start saying this is this is fucking silly and we're not going to play this way anymore but I don't know I don't know but guys that's going to do it for me for this week there's a couple of different things I could touch up on President Trump just came out and, and announced that he and Melania have COVID it changes the scopes of everything going on right now it's a madhouse but I'm not going to sit here and postulate on uh, on on the president or the or the vast number of conspiracy theories of, of everything going on right now just not going to do that. And I'm going to tell you, you know, thanks for listening. Hey, guys, check us out. Check check me out on Podchaser. All right, podchaser.com slash fritzcast is going to be the new centralized hub, I think, of fritzcast where uh, I'm going to send everybody to go find their favorite podcast chasers and everything like that. Uh, but leave me, leave me a, a review and a rating there if you like this. Uh, also on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all your all your Johns. It's, uh, it's on everywhere. Um, and remember, guys, I love you. And I'll be back next week with another jam-packed episode of FritzCast. See ya.